Well, church family, glad to see you this morning. So glad that you could be with us, whether you're online or you're in the room. It's great to be here together. So last week, I introduced myself and started week one of a four-week Easter series. My name is Pastor Dave Mergens, and I have the privilege of being the adult formation pastor here at Alexandria Covenant. Pastor Trinity and our church administrator, Sam Williams, are in Israel. Uh, This is the second week of their trip to Israel, and he sent me a message to let me know a few things that have happened. Uh, They had a chance for a number of them who were there to renew some wedding vows and a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. There was some baptisms in the Jordan River. And today they're actually visiting the Red Sea and the Dead Sea uh, and the regions surrounding that. So they are uh, very active, doing a lot of fun things in the area, which God did a lot of wonderful things in starting the movement of Christianity. And so continued prayers for them. Week one, we talked about Jesus as the overcomer. And truly, we have peace not because we have it easy as Christians. We have peace because the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes with us because of what he did on the cross. The Holy Spirit ushers in the presence of God into our lives. And so that is where we find peace associated with God's presence. Today, I'll talk a little bit about Jesus's prayer. Next week, we will look at Pilate's statement to Jesus when he was on trial. And the big question that was asked in that moment is, what is truth? Question that we wrestle with a lot in our culture today and will be great to look at. And week four will be Easter. And in two weeks from now, Pastor Trinity, Lord willing, will be back and he will be here to present the Easter message. But today we're going to look at a passage in the scripture that is unlike any other passage that uh, you've read before. So if you'd open up to John chapter 17, John chapter 17, and this passage is very, very unique. It's unique for this reason, because there's no other place in scripture where Jesus prays to this extent that we have recorded. So we know uh, multiple places and times in the Gospels where it talks about Jesus going uh, to a mountainside to pray, where he was alone in the wilderness to pray, when he prayed in front of people, and he prayed over meals, and he prayed for individuals. And we even have what's called the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, but that really wasn't the Lord's prayer because that was the prayer Jesus taught the disciples to pray, to pray. And in that prayer was a description on how to confess sin, which we know Jesus would have no need to do. So it was a disciples' prayer in Matthew 6. And so what we see in John 17, all 26 verses, is Jesus praying. It's Jesus praying. This is the capstone of the first few chapters leading up to it, John 13 through 16. And so we have this great mosaic of all the things that had happened. Jesus and the disciples were in the upper room. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He then shared a meal with them and instituted what we know as communion. He taught, he encouraged, he challenged, he warned, and he spent time with them. Then they left, they headed to Jerusalem. And while they were in Jerusalem, in specifically uh, right below the, uh, the Mount of Olives, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shared and prayed a little more. And he predicted his death, his resurrection, and the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to look today at two verses. 
just two. Uh, I looked at the entire 26, and I thought, oh, I could preach in all 26. But uh, because I'm uh, a little shorter in stature than Trinity, I figured I have to be a little shorter in my message as well, uh, just to keep it keep it real here. So we are going to look just at two verses today, but I promise you in those two verses, uh, I could talk all day about them, but I, I will, will not. But you'll get the point. So here's what I want to do as we look at this today. I, there... There is something in this that I, I promise you will really challenge your heart. That there are words in here that Jesus says that will change everything if you decide to live into them. Change marriage life, change your parenting, change your workplace, change your church, change your relationship with God. That what Jesus said here is so profound and impactful it will radically alter the way that we think. So what I want to do this morning as we read these two verses, would you please stand if you're able? Please stand and let's look at these together as I read them out loud. Jesus said this in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. He said, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Please remain standing as I pray. God, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for the words that he uttered in John chapter 17. Words, God, that I know have challenged me to great depths this week as I've reflected on them and as I've thought on them. Lord, may your word be communicated through me this morning, that it not be my message, but that it be your message, that we may all be one in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was Saturday, June 23rd, 2018. A situation unfolded that was unlike any that had happened in recent memory and captivated the minds of many people across the world. It was a crisis. There were 12 boys, ages 11 through 16, and their 25-year-old assistant soccer coach who decided to go and celebrate one of the boys' birthdays by doing some cave exploring. And as they went to go explore this cave. Time went by and the evening came and the parents became concerned not knowing where the boys were and started texting the head coach who had no idea that his team led by the assistant head coach had entered the time-long cave in northern Thailand. When the head coach was informed that this might be where they were, he decided to go searching for them. He entered uh, the area where the caves were. He went to the cave entrance and found their bicycles, their belongings, and everything that these boys had left behind as they went into the caves. And he realized very quickly that this was an immediate dangerous situation because the rains had been falling, and in the monsoon season, these caves flood. The rescue effort that ensued was one of massive proportion. There were over 10,000 people who got involved in this rescue effort. There were over 100 divers, rescue workers, representatives from well more than 100 different government agencies. Two men 
lost their lives in the effort to rescue these boys. 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 helicopters, 7 ambulances, and more than 700 cylinders of oxygen used for the divers to get into the caves to access these boys were employed in this rescue. The government pumped out more than 1 billion, waters of le- 1 billion liters of water. There were other agencies involved, such as the British Cave Rescue Council, the United States Air Force, and the Australian Federal Police. Many people, different skills, different genders, different languages, differences in many ways came together for one purpose, to rescue these young men. And they did. They successfully accomplished their goal. In almost every area of life that we live, unity leads to victory. Unity leads to victory. Think about it. Whether it's your married life, parenting, whether it's your workplace, whether it's a sports team, uh, any area in life where there's unity, there is victory. People coming together with one accord accomplish great things. Because the topic of what I'm about to discuss is on unity, I thought the definition would be appropriate. The definition of unity is the state of being united or joined as a whole. Joined as a whole. So really, the Bible uses this word as a metaphor all over the place. Uh, Being one, being in, being connected to, being of one mind, uh, many different ways, living by one truth. The Greek word for unity, uh, for one, in this particular passage we're looking at, is heis, and it means... (laughs) One. So really, the concept is pretty simple. It's that we're all one. It's that there's a connection there. And, you know, I'm fascinated by this prayer because Jesus could have prayed for all sorts of things. He really could have. Think about it. Jesus could have prayed for his disciples to have courage. He could have prayed for his disciples to have great faith. I mean, he knew what was going to happen. He could have prayed for them to have strength to get through the coming days or for love to love each other. But what did Jesus decide to pray for in this passage? And really, in the entirety of the verses 1 through 26, Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed for unity. And if you look at verse uh, 21 and uh, 20 and 21 there, again, I hope it's an open in front of you. There's a couple of observations that I just want to make. The first one is this. Jesus' prayer is for our unity with God and others. This is what Jesus prayed for. He prayed that that we, as as followers of him, would be united and also with God, that we would be connected as one. Uh, In the text, if you look through all of scripture, this is often a misunderstanding when we read the text, is that the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written for us. So there was an original audience and an original author, and one wrote to the other. And so it wasn't written to us. But this one place in the text, it says that it was written to us, that it was for all who would believe on account of the testimony of the original disciples, that Jesus was literally praying for us. Beautiful words, prayer for unity with God and for the others. It was also that his example of unity, because we have to have an example or else how do we define what it is? In verse 21, he says, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. So the example here is that we be connected to each other the same way that God 
and the Son, the Father and the Son are connected. And the other observation to make here is that the result of this unity is belief. The result of this unity is belief. It's really a fascinating thing when you think about it. Evangelism is the result of unity. That as we're one in God and one with each other in purpose of God, that evangelism is the natural byproduct. That that's what happens as a result of that. So why is unity so important? Why is unity so important? And I really want you to hear me out on this because this is just... If you get this, you'll understand what I'm about to say. But unity is so important for many reasons. But do you believe, do you believe that Jesus really is the Son of God? Do you believe that he has the words of life? That there are no other, there are no other avenues of life that will lead to any kind of fulfillment outside of Christ? That in him and through him, we actually have life. We can pursue all kinds of stuff in this world. But are they anything compared to a relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't think they are. In fact, I know they're not. I've spent my lifetime thus far doing ministry and spending time in God's word and seeing the world for what it was. And I have never seen another religion, another document, another evidence of anything worth following outside of Jesus Christ, that he is all that there is worth following. Unity with God and unity with the church really does connect us to this life in Christ. And that's why it's so important. So the question is, how do we become one with Christ? Because unity with Jesus is life. So the big question that I want you to ask in your mind right now is, what does unity require? What does it require? What do you actually need to do in order to be one with God and one with your church family? Well, there's a lot of ways you could, you could answer this. Um, answering this question and living by it will actually change your life. But it starts specifically with Jesus Christ. It really does. And it has to be a focus on him, as you'll see. And now, now I get to begin my sermon. Um, so here's the deal. Unity requires three things. Unity requires, number one, it requires alignment. Um, I have to be, be careful not to use my kids' as illustrations in this sermon, or else I'm going to go broke in three weeks here. I get to pre- preach consecutively. Uh, my, my youngest daughter was quickly um, aware that I didn't transfer the money right away for the sermon illustration from last week, because when I use my kids in the sermons, uh, they do require prompt payment for that. Um, that's kind of the deal that we've had and the running joke. So this week, I can't talk about that, but I will talk about my, my parenting. So even, even between services, I was talking to other parents and having this conversation conversation. And if you're not on the same page as a parent, (laughs) you know what that's like, right? The kids know who to ask for things that they want when they know one person won't say yes. They go to the person who will. And if there's not unity between parents, and you all know this because either you've been a child and you've done this, or you are a parent and you experience this, that unity is important. Alignment is very important in parenting because if you're not on the same page, things can happen and it can go south really fast. Think about it this way. Union without unity is painful. Union without unity is painful. This is where conflict comes up in family. Um, How many of you have ever had a sliver before? You know, a metal sliver or a wood sliver, and you get it in your hand or someplace when you're working with a tool or you're working with wood or something, and slivers are are awful. (laughs) They're the smallest, littlest things ever, but they cause such great agony. 
And if you get a sliver, you know. And my immediate response is like, okay, well, we'll start with the pin. And then, you know, I've been told maybe if you put Vaseline on it, put a bandaid on it, then it'll work its way out. And sometimes that's, that's worked. But I get so like worked up about it that I'm like, I graduate to the butcher knife real quick. And I'm like trying to dig it out with a knife. And, and then pretty much there's so much blood I can't see and I'm trying to get it out. But, but you know when a sliver has been one with your flesh and it shouldn't be. <laughs> You want to get it out really fast, and it feels uncomfortable because union without unity is painful. God designed us both as a body of Christ in the church and as individuals to be aligned with him and nothing else. And alignment with other things takes away from life, where alignment with Christ gives life. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. He says it this way. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we all have been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Do you catch what he's saying here? (laughs) That there are differences among the body. All of us are different people, but there's function yet harmony in purpose. Right? So different parts to all of us, but harmony in purpose. Um, April 16th, we're doing a baptism service, and I'm really excited about that. We're going to do immersion baptisms right in this room during all three services. If you haven't been baptized before, let me just give you the nutshell version of what this is like. When Christ was crucified and died the death that he did and rose again. The Bible talks about baptism as in alignment with the life of Christ. That when you go under the water, your old life is being crucified with Christ and coming out of the water is being born again, being new in relationship to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an alignment thing. It's a visible reality, visible example of a spiritual reality when we align our lives to Christ through the waters of baptism, both, again, for evangelism, because people who see that are like, why would you do that? But then also a confirmation of what you've done internally by making Jesus your believing loyalty, who you love and serve. Paul talks about this um, again in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. He says this, he says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all in all and living through all. Paul with seven times emphasizes that one is important. And that oneness is with Christ. It's with his mission. It's with the Father. It's in the Spirit. It's in the hope of what we have to come. That is what Paul is talking about. Aligning ourselves with God truly is unity. So unity requires alignment. You can't do it without it. Unity also requires relationship. This was Jesus's life. He embodied this If you go back and read through the Gospels, and I love reading through the Gospels uh, this time of year, depending on where you're at, if you're doing a Bible read-through, you're kind of getting into it a little bit. Um, I've been in the book of Luke, and in the book of Luke, uh, talking about Jesus when he was uh, spending time in in his father's house, and his parents were like, why were you there? Jesus just had a, a deep desire and longing to be with 
God, the Father, at all times. He wanted to connect with him and commune with him and talk about him and pray to him. And this was Jesus's life. He was continually living in close relationship with the Father. I know personally that it's easier to do things by myself. (laughs) It's really how I'm designed. I like to do things alone because it's just a lot easier. And some of you in this room feel this way as well. But that's not the way that God purposed us. He didn't mean for us to do things on our own. You see, alone you may be able to go faster, but together you'll go further. And God designed us for more than that. Look at John 5.30. This relationship piece is so important. Remember who's saying this. This is Jesus saying this, John 5.30. By myself, I can do nothing. Circle, underline, highlight that phrase. Jesus just said that. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. There are two things in every relationship and two things when it comes to unity that are enemies. And those two things are not being in relationship and seeking pleasure for self. Consider that for a second. If you want to ruin a relationship really fast, don't spend time with that person ever. (laughs) If you want to cause conflict in a relationship, seek to please yourself and not the other person. That will also really damage a relationship. And Jesus, first and foremost, in his relationship with God, number one, says he does nothing by himself that he's always doing stuff with God, always. And not only that, but he doesn't seek to please himself, he pleases God. And he's going after pleasing God, not pleasing himself. It's why when in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus was tempted to self-serve in the wilderness, when Satan came along and said, why don't you turn these stones into bread? He absolutely could have done that because he's God, he's creator, he's sustainer. He could have done that, but he chose not to. He let the Father provide for him in an example of dependence and humility by seeking the Father's will, the Father's pleasure in relationship to him. In John chapter 8, it says this, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus is aware of and tuned into the reality of the Father at all times. Unity requires alignment, and unity requires relationship. And here's the final one. Unity requires love. Don't tune out to this one. I know it can feel and sound very Christian and very cliche that you need to love to be unified. Of course you need to. But let's understand this based on the reality of the cross, because that's how we define what love is. John 15 John 15, 9 through 10, it says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey the Father's commandments and remain in his love. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Now, I can imagine when the disciples heard this, they're like, oh yeah, we can do that. We've seen Jesus serve people and love on people and we get that. Can you imagine what those words would have sounded like in the heads of the disciples after the cross? Love each other as I have loved you. Jesus went to the cross to demonstrate his love. 
because it's alignment with the Father and his purposes. It is relationship continually and ongoing, and it is a cross-driven love that really brings unity into focus. Um, I want to close with an analogy. Uh, so this, you may have seen this up here. Maybe you didn't. kind of blends in a little bit. Um, you know what this is? This is a tuning fork. I'm not a musician, uh, so I, I had to do a little uh, asking about how these things worked and what they, what they work like. Good old Google helped me out with that. Uh, but tuning forks, when you hit them, you can hear this on my mic, emit a specific sound or frequency. And the tuning fork is used as a standard by which somebody tunes a voice, an instrument, or something else too. And that this, instead of each other in the band, become the point at which everyone focuses on and unifies around. It's a standard of truth. A.W. Tozer had a great quote that wraps all this up, and I want to read it to you. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. He says this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each, looking, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. Do you catch that? What he's saying is this. Unity isn't us trying to tune our lives to each other and trying to force unity to happen. We live in a very broken world where there has been a lot of injustice that's been done to many people for many different generations in many ways. And there is no end to the amount of opinions, the amount of social reform, the amount of of call to action, and rightfully so, for unity. But none of those will work unless we're tuned to Jesus Christ first. Because he is the only one who is the standard of truth. And as our lives are tuned to Christ, what happens is our marriages get better. Our families come into alignment. Our church grows. Our communities heal. Our government, everything starts to, as we tune our lives to Christ, starts to heal. Because unity with Christ is the solution. And so my challenge to you today is to tune your life to Christ. Tune your life to the cross. Tune your life to the cross of Christ so that everyone around you knows him and that relationship becomes all that he designed it to be with him and with others. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I recognize that without you, we don't know what the, what the truth is, as we'll look at even next week. But we need alignment with you, Jesus. We need relationship with you, and we need your example of love so that we might become nearer to each other as a result of becoming nearer to you. So may that be the cry of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.